0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. It's Thursday and we have a great show for you today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. Let's Let's get get into into it, it, I guess. There's,
1: There's a lot to cover today. Yesterday, the U.S. vetoed a United Nations resolution condemning all violence against civilians in Israel and Palestine. The resolution would have designated a ceasefire for the passage of humanitarian aid through the region. It seems for now, airstrikes will continue. However, yesterday, Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu relented to allowing foreign aid into the region after urging from President Biden. A senior Israeli official told Axios that during his meeting with the Israeli war cabinet, Biden explained that the optics of allowing aid would help maintain international support for the IDF's
0: operation against Hamas. Well, yesterday, massive protests demanding a ceasefire in the region broke out on Capitol Hill. Hundreds of activists for the anti-war group's Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now, occupied the Cannon House office building in DC yesterday before they were detained and led away by Capitol Police. 300 people in total were arrested. Now before the crackdown on protesters, uh, they were joined outside Capitol Hill by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Let's listen to what she had to say.
2: The majority of Americans are literally against oppression. They are, they're against occupation, they're against uh, human rights violations. If you just tell them the truth, they will be on our side so we have to speak the truth when are we going to feel safe when are we going to stop funding continued uh, literally oppression of indigenous communities when are we going to say enough it makes me so angry to have to say but i'm telling you i'm talking to people that literally are like me they literally literally believed in this party that was supposed to be inclusive of all of our opinions and our, and our views and our political stance and, and all of these things. But what is God starting to get really, really, really clear and very loud is that somehow many of us in this room, because of our political opinions, because maybe our faith is a certain faith, maybe because our ethnicity is a certain ethnicity, that somehow we're subhuman.
1: President Biden is set to give a primetime address on the conflict in Israel Palestine tonight. We will, of course, bring you coverage of that
0: tomorrow. Um, we didn't play it there, but I did want to note that Talib also um, brought up the hospital explosion. And you know, this is, a, she was speaking well after the time period in which we now have more information that. You know, U.S. intelligence and Israeli intelligence and The Wall Street Journal have said um, that the hospital explosion was the work of the, the non-Hamas Islam. group. Yeah. She again said it there in that speech that it was Israel and did not, you know, re Uh, Corrected, Even when that was pointed out so a lot of uh, conservatives criticizing her for that Yeah,
1: I mean the one of the main rationale for not believing the first initial reports apart from the things I said yesterday uh, Which is that there was this um, Israeli comms person who seemed to claim credit for Israel of the attacks Um, There has been more reporting now out of Channel 4 news that the video that's been put forward by Israel that purports to show to uh, members of Hamas having a conversation about how it was not the IDF's uh, bomb appears to be by linguists and Arabic speakers, they, they rep- represent it to be seemingly very like fake, almost as a staged feeling, um, and that the, the dialect and the accents are all off. And there are still. I think a a very—very much an ongoing debate about what happened there. I think—I think that the jury is still out. And part of the other reason that people are very skeptical is because we have had these instances where you have Israel doing an individual—independent investigation, at times, with the U.S.'s support or the U.S.'s limited ability to investigate, where they have misrepresented the facts on the ground, including most recently—and I think most prominent in people's minds—the killing of uh, Abu, uh, Shireen Abu Akleh, the Palestinian-American journalist, by a member of the IDF in a way that was targeted. And so, first, the IDF—Israel uh, denied it, that it happened, um, denied that it was their person who killed her. And then they said it was in a conflict zone. And then they said, oh, it happened, but it was an accident. And it took many rounds of investigation from outside, non-governmental, um, organizations to finally get to the truth of a matter and get an admission. So I do think everyone should make no strong claims about this and just give it a beat. Um, But generally speaking, I wonder what you made of this event. So the, the activists at the—I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you go have, ahead. The activists I, so at the, I mean,
0: I'm going to be speaking in greater detail about the hospital issue specifically in my radar today, sure. and we're talking about it more, so we okay. can proceed right now.
1: Um, so the protesters, there were a large number of them, and they really managed to have a significant effect there at the Capitol. And they were, I think, notably Jewish protesters speaking out against the abuses against uh, Palestinians. I think a lot of folks, both uh, Jewish Americans and— Some uh, people in Israel have been pointing out the connection between instances of terror and Israeli deaths and the ongoing occupation, and very much see their fate both in Israel and in the global diaspora and their safety being linked to resolving that conflict in a way that respects the rights and interests of Palestinians. You see uh, all these protests across the Arab world. There were people in Iran, I believe—no, it was in Iraq—chanting, you know, America is the number, number one devil. And it's precisely because of the perception that America is backing Israel in its occupation and in, in the um, continued oppression of Arabs both living in— in Israel and in these occupied territories. And it was really interesting to see that the response from that, I think Marjorie Taylor Green and another conservative congress member were there, um, started waving the Israeli flag at the protesters, although as though that was some kind of—I don't know what that means. What does it mean to wave an Israeli flag at a bunch of Jewish protesters right. as, a, as a Christian? I mean,
0: look. I think it is worthwhile, um, we're doing it, to push back against greater U.S. involvement or U.S. involvement at all mm-hmm. because we don't want the conflict to escalate. We don't want to be part of it. The American people don't want to be part of it. I don't know that the kind of rally that Tlaib and others were participating in is the. I, obviously, they have free speech to do whatever they want. I'm totally entitled to your opinions. But if we're going to create um,
2: of
0: and like ally with people against- on the right because there are some people on the right. We're talking. We're going to be talking about Vivek talking to Tucker. Um, th- the voices on the right that don't want greater U.S. involvement and don't want greater U.S. military aid committed. I'm just saying, like that that alliance is going to have to be about it being best for the U.S. to just stay out of it, rather than about. Frankly, the Palestinian cause being more righteous or whatever than the because the sympathies of the American people I mean we read those poll numbers, right? The American people are much more broadly sympathetic to the Israeli position. So I think the best argument is gonna be on what's good for the US.
1: Well, I don't know. Against
0: getting (laughs) I don't know the Jewish
1: people who are protesting there who are concerned about. But they're the extreme
0: minority. They are.
1: Okay, well, they're the ones that are there protesting, and they're not. They're worried about a moral claim and their own personal safety. So I don't think that appealing—that's going to be particularly appealing to them. To say, "Well, drop that cause. Don't talk about that." They're the ones that are ultimately going to be targeted. Um, among, along with the rest of us, frankly, because as you raised the other day, explicitly in, in Osama bin Laden's letter explaining why he bombed the World Trade Center, flew the you know, why, why 9-11 happened, mm-hmm. was because of the ongoing oppression of Palestinians. Now, you can say that that's not a root issue and that we can keep ignoring it, but how many people have to die, not that it's justified, but how many people have to die because so many people are upset about this oppression, and hearing it specifically from Jew- Jewish voices who are the ones that are in the crosshair, I think really is powerful. I don't want to skip over Um, the news about the U.S. vetoing a resolution condemning all violence against civilians in Israel and Palestine. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, a U.N. resolution saying violence against civilians is bad is an easy sell. So why would the U.S. veto a resolution like this?
0: I think they did not like that the statement did not contain um, the assertion that Israel has the right to defend That's itself, right? That's exactly
1: right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So Lindsey Thomas-Greenfield gave a statement afterwards saying exactly that, that. Because the statement didn't literally contain the phrase, Israel has a right to defend itself, the United States of America took the position, that it would veto a resolution to say violence is bad. Violence against civilians, specifically, is bad. What's, what is that? What is going on here?
0: I mean... At the end of the day, it doesn't matter much. It's just a UN resolution. Well, I think I guess.
1: it does. It does have some broader implications. I mean,
0: because Biden did anyway, go and talk to Netanyahu and and convince him to reverse course on the humanitarian aid, which is a good limited first step. Not nearly enough, but right. But
1: it doesn't. That's not a prohibition against. Uh, the continued bombing of Gaza. And that's what the tipping point has been—that's that's the central issue here. People who have defended Israel's actions long after proportionality has gone out, out of the window, more than twice as many Palestinian civilians have now been killed as Israeli civilians were tragically killed in the events of October 7. So at this point, people are asking, you've been bombarding uh, the Gaza Strip for a week and a half now. You have dropped more, what, 6,000 bombs, more bombs in a week, in the first week of bombing than America dropped on Afghanistan in like the first year of war. When does this end? But the, but the, the point the the was States... not to have
0: some kind of proportionality or to like kill as many people well, as right. Hamas killed. The point is to is to eliminate Hamas. Well, and they're I, I'm not glad you said that. so they're I'm glad you to said that. that. So
1: from humanity, that's Israel's standing. But the United Nations, is now tacitly endorsing that project, which it's not eliminating Hamas. It's eliminating overwhelmingly civilians, which is a war crime and a violation of the standards that the UN is supposed to uphold. So this is a really interesting position, where basically the real reason, if you read through the, if you read through the uh, between the lines, it does seem like the United States and the UN, because it's subject to our veto power, refuses to put any limits on Israel's killing of civilians. As, as long as the initial pretext is that we're going after Hamas, the ratio of civilians to Hamas doesn't seem to be weighing in at all. It's not, a,
0: it's not a pretext. The, they are going after Hamas. They've killed Hamas leaders. They're trying to ferret sure. Hamas out of their as positions. As long as
1: there is even one Hamas member—if if the standard is, as it seems to be, given the um, United States' unqualified support, of their right to defend itself, which means bombing this civilian population, which is 50 percent children, without any... Um, real conversation about what is worth it in terms of loss of civilian life, that is basically a carte blanche to say as long as Hamas exists, we can basically exterminate the civilian population, which is why there's so many um, conversations about whether this is a genocide and an ethnic cleansing, especially given there's already, of course last week, the order to evacuate the whole top half of the country, meaning right. one million I mean, the, people the displaced The reality is eternally. the US
0: was not going to allow the UN to put some limit on Israel's right to go after Hamas, what we could do is just stop funding it. That's what I would like, rather than perform it yeah, a declaration sure. one way or the
2: other.
1: Yeah, I sure. Just, I just really want people to sit with this, sit with what it means for the U.S. to veto a resolution condemning all violence against civilians. What kind of position that puts us in, in, in the world, broadening it out to the conversation we were just having about how we're perceived, the America as a country is perceived in the context of the world as— Frankly, the, the, the number one devil, uh, as we were described by those Iraqi, um, those Iraqi protesters. This is, this is a tough one, obviously. We're going to stay on this issue, but stick around for a lot of other good rising content coming up next.
0: Will we soon see U.S. troops on the ground in the Middle East? Well, Biden officials have indicated to Israel in recent days that if Hezbollah initiates a war against Israel, the U.S. military will join the IDF in fighting the terror group. Officials with knowledge of the matter have told The Times of Israel. Per reporting from Jacob Majid, the Biden administration has privately been urging Israel not to launch a military campaign against Hezbollah as Washington works to keep the current war from spreading beyond Gaza. Despite Biden's private
1: efforts to rein in Netanyahu and the IDF, Israel's endgame remains increasingly unclear. There is no sign of a post-war plan for Gaza, Reuters reports. One regional security official told the outlet, quote, Their strategy is to drop thousands of bombs, destroy everything, and go in. But then what? They have no exit strategy for the day after. This comes as cracks of instability continue to appear across the region. Saudi Arabia is urging its citizens to depart Lebanon amid Hezbollah threats. And the State Department is currently warning Americans not to travel to Lebanon. Joining us now to weigh in on all of this is Dr. Trita Parsi, Executive Director at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Welcome back, Dr. Parsi.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, help us understand why this uh, warning of Saudi everybody to get its people out of Lebanon is so ominous, and what other signs do you see that this conflict is only getting bigger?
3: Well, the, the reason why this is quite ominous is because if Israel goes in with a land invasion into Gaza, that appears to be the most likely trigger for Hezbollah to step into the war. And that would mean that it would be a two-front war And last time that happened, or the last time Israel and and Lebanon had a war was in 2006. You had Israeli mass bombings of Lebanon, which got a lot of Americans stuck in Lebanon and tremendous difficulty actually evacuating them from there. So it's not just Saudi Arabia, the United States State Department is also urging Americans to leave um, uh, Lebanon right now. And that seems to be an indication of an expectation or at least an assessment of a high risk that Israel is going to go in to Gaza and that that will lead to Hezbollah stepping into the war. What that further will lead to is an expansion of the war in the sense that the United States likely is going to get dragged into it uh, because Iran is going to get dragged into it. And then we will have not only a crisis in Ukraine, a potential crisis in Taiwan, but also yet another unwinnable, unnecessary war in the Middle East that the United States is a part of.
0: I obviously can't speak for all of the American people. It seems there's some still strong memory of our failures in the Middle East in recent decades. Um, I I, don't—I'm sure the American people have divided opinions on, on what should be done, how they feel about what's happening. I don't think there is anywhere near universal support for greater U.S. involvement to the point of troops in the region. Joe Biden, in his statements about what's going on, has obviously affirmed that he thinks Israel should defend itself and, and take a lot of the actions it's taking, and we're sending them support, although he has urged caution for the harming of civilians. What do you think he ought to do, or even can do, to prevent this kind of escalation that it seems to me the American people is, are certainly not universally behind?
3: I think the critical thing is to make sure that there is not a land invasion and that we get to a ceasefire and the release of the hostages. Uh, I know that that is a tough message for the Israelis, but the United States has a lot of experience in this. And so does incidentally Israel. Israel has been in these wars over and over again, and it's not been able to achieve peace through war on the battlefield. The United States went in to take out Al Qaeda and the Taliban government in Afghanistan 20 plus years ago invaded the country, occupied it for 20 years. And guess what? The Taliban are still in power in Afghanistan today. So the idea that there is a military solution, however much the rage and the anger right now wishes to see such a solution, does not mean that they actually exist. And good advice to an ally in this situation would be to not just caution them, but to also pressure them not to do anything that would be bad for them that would also then drag the united states into this war the fact that the president is indicating or or messages are out that there won't be any uh, ground troops in it actually does not matter because what will happen in this scenario is that other militias throughout the region will start targeting american bases where american ground troops already are particularly in the persian gulf we've already seen some drone attacks against u.s bases in iraq so even if not not more ground troops are brought into the region as part of this war, does not mean that American troops in the region will not end up in harm's way and end up in that war.
1: It, It does seem like President Biden has been unwilling to say much when it comes to asking Israel to exercise restraint publicly, although there has been reporting about him privately urging against a ground war. It does seem, though, like the most persuasive thing that he could say to Netanyahu is that you cannot rely on a commitment of our troops if you do pursue this cause of action. I mean, I, I've also been speaking to some experts who say that Hezbollah is a very seasoned, well-trained, active fighting force as compared to the IDF, and that some of the mythology around Israel's military being a very high quality and very effective are misplaced, aren't, aren't really true, and were also kind of revealed to be not really true on October 7th, when, in, a, in that unprecedented and horrible way, um, the, the terrorist attack was able to take place. So, so why don't you think that uh, Joe Biden is using that leverage, saying, you cannot rely on American ground troops, you should ac- uh, conduct yourself accordingly? And, and what are the risks of Israel going at it alone? Can they even sustain and survive but for American support?
3: Well, last time when Israel did go in, um, in 2006, it ended up essentially being defeated by Hezbollah. And so there, there's much to say that Hezbollah, which has had a very significant, significant number of battle-hardened troops because of their participation in the Sy- Syrian civil war, have at this point greater experience in warfare than many of those on the Israeli side. Now, whether that will be decisive, I'm not a military expert to, to uh, comment on. But I think the larger point you're making is a very valid one that has to be asked, which is if we are truly trying to prevent an escalation, if the president truly is seeking a way to make sure that this war does not expand and that the United States does not get dragged into it, why has he adopted an approach that publicly gives Israel a complete green light while deterring Iran and and, and Hezbollah? rather one that also publicly signals and makes clear to Hezbollah and to Iran that the United States is also trying to deter Israel from expanding the war. The message Hezbollah and Iran are receiving essentially is that the US is giving a green light, which then increases their suspicion that when Israel has mobilized 350,000 troops, that is not just for going into uh, uh, Gaza, it's also to later on go into Lebanon. That may be a false perception. That may not be uh, Israel's intent. But the strategy of giving Israel complete support and a green light, I fear, is undermining the larger objective that the administration says that it does have, which is to prevent the escalation that can bring the U.S. into the
0: war. Yeah, Biden said, In his recent remarks he said, later this week, I'm going to ask the United States Congress for an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. We're going to keep Iron Dome fully supplied. Um, We moved U.S. military assets to the region, including the USS Ford Carrier Strike Group, the USS Eisenhower on the way. Uh, That sounds like full-throated—that sounds like whatever they need, whenever they need it, and if we were giving them all this support, we should be in a position to not just gently caution like, hey, let's make sure we don't start World War III here, but to demand these are the terms of this support. Why doesn't the U.S. ever do oh. that, when it, as, as it offers support to all sorts of countries and all sorts of reasons? We seem to not get the policies that we want, or at least the policies that the American people want, which I don't think is open-ended commitment and ground troops.
3: It is, unfortunately, the pattern that we've seen for a very long time, an outdated, and in my view, mis- uh, political miscalculation that the United States has to essentially completely be on the side of Israel uh, in manners that are actually are not in the interests of the U.S. It's one thing to support Israel. It's a completely different thing to do it to the extent that we're seeing right now. The other signal that sent is that if we are saying that either we're not willing, or as some people in close to the administration are saying, that we can't, Uh, exercise that leverage over Israel then what signal does that send to the rest of the region we saw how many of these states canceled their meeting with uh, Biden and in many ways embarrassed Biden's entire trip to the region but if we're saying that we don't have leverage with Israelis then why should some of these Arab states expect that um, uh, diplomacy with the United States is going to be fruitful if the US cannot deliver Israel And it cannot deliver the arab states then what is the basis of america being able to be an effective mediator and peacemaker in this conflict Mm. so i think it lies in our own interest to build on that credibility to make sure that we can put pressure on both sides, we can be tough on both sides, we can deliver both sides, rather than what we're doing right now. All of these different military assets moving to the region, you had uh, in Congress, the Republicans have introduced an authorization of use of force against Iran uh, in Congress, all of these things to deter Iran and Hezbollah, but almost nothing publicly to also signal that the United States is gonna try to rein in uh, Israel and make sure that Israel doesn't do anything that leads to an escalation.
1: Mm -hmm. Dr. Parsi, Joe Biden has said uh, Israel is of such geopolitical significance to us. If if it didn't already exist, I would have invented it. Is there something in that that is uh, clarifying as to why Biden isn't being more forceful with Israel right now? Is there something that we're missing about what Israel means to America uh, in terms of its military significance, its ability, our ability to have a, a place to put, troops and weapons in the area. Is there something that's really significant here that we're missing?
3: We're not missing a thing, and the United States does not have troops in Israel. The Israelis don't want US troops in Israel. We are not missing a thing when it comes to the geopolitical calculation. It was a different situation during the Cold War in which Israel was an ally of the United States against uh, uh, the Soviets. At that point, there was a strategic basis for that relationship. After the end of the Cold War, according to the Israelis themselves, the strategic logic underpinning that relationship was significantly weakened. And as a result, you saw a change of the language on the Israeli and the American side, in which the the justification for this relationship was no longer put forward in terms of strategic calculations, but rather that these are two countries with shared values. Mm. That ended up becoming the basis for the relationship, not a geopolitical calculation. Mm.
0: Very interesting observation. Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brad. We have some breaking news. Representative Jim Jordan will not seek a vote on Thursday for a third try at the speakership. This after it became evident he does not have enough support from his colleagues in the chamber. Now, according to Punchbowl's Jake Sherman, he will back Patrick McHenry as an interim speaker until January. McCarthy, McHenry, Jordan, Cole, and Emmer met this morning, and the conference is starting right now.
1: Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi had this to say after Jordan failed to secure votes during the second try. I'm
2: just curious,
4: what is your reaction to another failed speaker vote with Republicans? Well, I I think uh, it was a triumph for democracy in our country that an insurrectionist was was rejected uh, by the Republicans again as their candidate for speaker. Uh, We've always wished the winning party well as they choose their leader. I've never in the Decades that I've been here, uh, when we've had a a, a, a speaker's race on our side or their side, we've always respected each other's Mm -hmm. judgment. But today and yesterday, that was an assault on our democracy, as Jim Jordan assaulted our democracy on January 6th.
2: Have you, as a conference, at all discussed expanding Speaker Pro Tem McHenry's? You'll have to talk to
4: Hakeem about that. He's our leader, and he speaks for us.
2: But you.
1: And here's President Biden reacting to Jordan's failed attempt yesterday.
4: Do you have a, you have a view of Jim Jordan's current predicament and I'm unable to secure the speakership? I ache for him. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> Zero. None. Mr.
2: President? In you could right. hear that, he
0: said, I ache for him. It was kind of
1: funny. <laughs> he's, he's a little, little life left in the old guy yet. Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. He Every now and then he has good comic timing when he's asked to respond to a Republican plight.
1: He, look, Biden—the the question of whether Biden has riz has never, uh, never been up for debate. Okay. The, the, he has a certain je ne with the public, but, you know, we also have seen him lash out, and he's a complex guy. Let's talk about what's going on here. Democrats are obviously going with the line that Jim Jordan was not someone they could get behind to the extent they were ever willing to make any kind of compromises because, fundamentally, he was an insurrectionist, as they— uh, call it. I
0: mean, did you, he was supportive. Jordan, smash the windows and go through the... I, it no, seems to be what they're I referring to
1: is that he was very a very vocal supporter of Donald Trump's um, election lies immediately after, at a time when most Republicans were frankly kind of shaken and cowed and silent uh, immediately after 1-6 and making all kinds of statements that were subsequently retracted about how we've got to protect our democracy and this was inappropriate and the people in the, in the Capitol broke the law and were wrong. A lot of that got erased in the revision in his history of the next few months when they realized that Trump was still kicking as a viable political quantity. But he was with Trump, unwavering from the jump. And so that's that's why they're characterizing him a little bit differently than some of the other Republicans in the caucus. This question that was put to Nancy Pelosi, which she declined to answer because she, I guess, is wanting to respect Hakeem Jeffries' role as speaker now, as minority leader, rather, um, is whether or not the interim speaker, Patrick McHenry, should have his powers expanded uh, so that he can they can do the business, pass, pass billions of dollars of aid to Israel and Ukraine and whatever else, uh, just temporarily expanding it into November 17th when the government will either shut down uh, or they'll vote for a permanent speaker. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like the Democrats have said they were open to it, but they need more—Hakeem Jeffries has said they need more concessions. They're trying to get something out of an agreement to do that.
0: It sounds like Patrick McHenry is getting the speaker job the same way I got the host of Rising job by just sticking around while everyone else quit or was fired.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, people... I think that's an interesting point because it raises to the fact that people don't really know much about him. Yeah. You were just Googling him and saying that there was a photo accompanying an article about I, him. I it
0: couldn't was... tell. They say, Who is uh, Patrick McHenry? And I was looking at the photo and I'm like, I, I'm 70% sure I know which one of these people he is. It's like when you're um, online dating and you see someone
1: in a picture with all of their friends and you're trying to figure out which is the one you're Not trying an experience to call I've had. By. I don't right. know about that. Long married man. Yeah, wh- married long before the days of the, <laughs> the internet. Um, so McHenry is the chairman of the Financial Services Committee. Apparently, he is well-respected. This is from an op-ed in The Washington Post urging Democrats to make some kind of compromise to um, expand his powers. Respected by all factions in the GOP conference, they say the bow-tie-wearing 47-year-old has shown respect for the institution and increasing seriousness since being elected back in 2004 when he was just 29 years old. Um, And crucially, the the Washington Post editorial board says he voted to accept the results of the 2020 election when the majority of House Republicans sought to disenfranchise the people of Arizona and Pennsylvania.
0: You know, know, it's interesting. You kind of were picking at this thread. I want to return to it. Uh, Jim Jordan's ironclad support for Trump Mm
4: -hmm.
0: at the 1-6 moment, moment, you know, all—he really backed Trump. Um, Trump supported Jim Jordan for speaker— But not enough to make him speaker has Trump Trump hasn't been calling Representatives to get them to change their mind and vote for Jordan has he look Trump hasn't been he has tremendous sway Everyone's afraid to cross him. Did he call anyone and say if you don't vote for Jim Jordan tomorrow? I will campaign against you in your district. He didn't he didn't do any of that so my point is you can like you can back Trump and it can be good for you, but does Trump reward that backing with anything close to what it's worth.
1: I, I do think, in the context of these speaker votes, and given how close the um, the the split is in the House, at a, at some point when you're when it's four or five people that can make or break, I am less inclined to. Be interested, or, or to, to put too much weight on the emphasis that any one person can have, because even if you're the most persuasive person in the world, even if your political power is very mighty, yeah. and you can convince nine out of ten people to do what you say, there's at a certain point there's like human free will, and some some people who are Damn just it. <laughs> willing to play that game of chicken yeah. and drive off the cliff like Thelma and Louise style, and you just can't reason with. It's kind those of like h-
0: how on all the uh, or, or many of the. Votes that are whatever everyone agrees like there's still always one person who votes against it like one or two votes in the Senate or the house um, In this situation. That's all it takes. Yeah, that's literally all it takes
1: and there it has been the case at first it was like the freedom caucus people that were obviously the Mac age cohort that withheld the votes for Kevin McCarthy in the first instance back in January but the cohort of who these holdouts have been have been a little slippery between if they are kind of more trumpy people right. versus
0: well the not. Whole, the Jordan the people not voting for Jordan are holdouts yeah in the in the non-trump direction. Um, their holdouts of, of people who are mad, I mean, frankly, they don't want to reward the Matt Gates faction for what the Matt Gates faction did to McCarthy. That is really the root of, of them holding out. And because they already did that, because the Matt Gates faction already did that, there's nothing not that they can, can really do. compromise. We did the thing. They're, they're mad, the other faction is mad they did that, and thinks they'll be rewarding the faction if they now let Jordan have the speakership. So that's why they're just saying flatly no. And then everyone else is not acceptable to the Gates faction. So there's, there's just no, uh, no compromise, no uh, nowhere to go.
1: Yeah. I, I will just raise again, Nancy Pelosi very smugly saying in that comment, couldn't be me. We never had any of those issues, is in some ways a very tacit indictment of all of the uh, progressives who could have used this moment to really fight for the American people and chose not to. But it's not too late. There could be a scenario where some of these progressives, who I think are now having the targets on their back because of their advocacy for Palestine and their criticism of Joe Biden's approach to that conflict, could find some gains to trade across the aisle, depending if there really is a cohort of people who are willing to, let's say maybe because they want to hold up Ukraine uh, aid, even if they do not really care about the Israel aid, get together and work something out on that. I think the, the fundamental problem with doing that is going to be that. They all, they all want to fund Israel.
0: Yeah, that seems likely. Well, we'll have to see how Patrick McHenry uh, fares. I guess the, the hero we need, deserve, <laughs> want, got, I don't know. Thank we barely love. know what he looks like. More rising right after this. The Kraken has fallen. Trump-aligned attorney Sidney Powell pleaded guilty to six misdemeanor counts in the Georgia 2020 election interference case Thursday after reaching a plea agreement with the prosecutors, the second defendant in the sweeping case, to do so. Powell appeared before Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee to enter her plea just days before her trial was scheduled to begin next week. Let's watch the guilty plea.
5: All right. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Powell, I've been handed a document that's titled uh, a plea of guilty form. Is this uh, your signature as well on the second page? Yes, sir. Thank you, ma'am.
4: And Ma'am, do you understand that this is a negotiated plea, which means that your attorney and I have reached an agreement or the state has reached an agreement as to the proposed sentence that will be made to the court? I do. Do you understand that the recommendation being made to the court as to this accusation on counts one through six that you be sentenced to 12 months of probation to run consecutive with one another? I do. Do you understand that the state is asking that a $6,000 fine be imposed a restitution of $2,700 be paid to the state of Georgia? an apology letter be written to the citizens of the state of Georgia, that you truthfully testify at all hearings and proceedings and trials involving the co-defendants in this matter, and that you have no communication with co-defendants, media or witnesses until this case has been completely closed against all defendants. I do. And do you understand as a special condition of this uh, sentence that you are to provide what you've already done, a proffer, a recorded proffer to the state and provide any documents and evidence subject to any lawful privileges asserted in a good faith prior Um, prior to entering this plea. Undo. And judge All right. So she got off with
1: $6,000, a little probation, and an obligation to testify against Donald Trump.
0: That's the main thing. And why I have said, why I've predicted the Georgia indictment specifically for Trump is really bad for him because there were all these co-defendants, these other defendants, and they're all, the vast majority of them, it's extremely likely, will do exactly what Sidney Powell has done take a plea agreement, because what the prosecutors—they're really after Donald Trump. They—the rest of these people, they don't care. The rest of these people are, are leverage. They're little, they're little pieces on the chessboard to move around, yep. and what they're going to get, as contingent for all these, uh, these plea agreements, is to have all of those people flip on Trump. There's to have good, all of those yeah. people testify mm-hmm. that this was a criminal conspiracy that he organized and was the head of.
1: Yep. There's so many co-defendants. You're right. People flag this as a problem for Donald Trump from the beginning. There is going to be more flipping in that courtroom than at a 24 hour Denny's. It's going to
0: be oh, be. oh, I love it.
1: Insane. And look, remember what this was all about. This was about, um, uh, she was initially going to be charged in this uh, trial that was supposed to start on Monday uh, with. Conspiring to access data from these voting machines, these Dominion voting machines, um, without having authorization to do so, um, access to election equipment without authorization. She hired a computer allegedly uh, hired a computer forensics firm to send a team down to Georgia to copy software and data. This this is the kind of trial it was going to be. And you can you can sense that this is not worth the government's time and interest when there's a much, much bigger fish on the line. And we're just getting started. There are 16 remaining defendants, including Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows. Uh, and uh, Kenneth Cheeseborough, who was also slated to start on Monday, is still going forward on Monday, uh, uh, barring, you know, sometimes you get closer and closer to these trial start days and things start to turn. But it, it is kind of overwhelming to think about how much information is collectively held by all of these people and how much documentary evidence is possessed by all of these people in the form of emails and text messages and stuff, which, of course, are discoverable, but having these people work with you as opposed to trying to use various kinds of privileges and stuff to keep it from you as best that they can, letting them be able to work with you because they know that it's not going to implicate their own guilt in the yep. process
0: is huge. And to be clear, I'm not I'm not endorsing this. I'm not saying the law ought to be like this. I'm not saying this is, uh, this is ideal from the perspective of due process and working to prove your innocence, in in some to some extent, the existence of well of prosecutors. Incredible ability to charge people and frankly overcharge them necessitates forcing most people to rather than actually face a trial and face a jury to make some kind of arrangement. There's a lot of criticisms that that progressives and libertarians have had of the criminal justice system along that line. Yeah, laws like RICO allowing prosecutors to go after people who are minimally involved in um, in uh, criminal efforts Um, like that's all well reported. That's totally fine. You can think all that. You know, so, again, this is not an endorsement. It's just we need to discuss the reality and the likelihood that Trump is in so much trouble, so much legal jeopardy for this reason. And like, okay, he's running for president. Um, He's going to be—he's going to be facing serious legal charges in multiple jurisdictions. And I mean, it's up to Republican primary voters to decide if they really want to go through with this. Yeah, with everything on the line, who's gonna, is the, is Joe Biden going to remain in office, or is he going to be unseated by the Republican candidate? I'm just saying, maybe you would take into account how how much time your, your standard bearer is gonna have for the actual jousting given all this is going on. You don't have to like it. You can totally think it's unfair and that it's, an, it's awful what they've done to Donald Trump and that it violates his free speech rights and that it's, it's, it's a deep state plot. You can think all of that. I am not calling, I'm not calling on you to change your mind about any of that. But we have to face reality. And if defeating Joe Biden is important to you, you need to take these things into account, because it's, it's happening. It is going to happen. There's no magic solution. No divine presence is going to reach down its hand and rescue Trump from this legal peril. It's serious. It's bad. Wake up.
1: Do you think there's really a chance that Donald Trump might not be able to be the Republican nominee?
0: For this reason? Mm-hmm. I think logistically, it's it would be it's going to be very hard for him to run an actual campaign and and win for that reason. Now Joe Biden is so unpopular and doing so badly in all of those polls, but polls that generally show other Republican candidates doing even better against Joe Biden. So why, for, for tactical reasons, is this? the right choice. But it's not up to me. And I can say that till I'm the blue in the face. It's up to Republican primary voters. And so far, they have said, we don't care. I mean, Trump's what a guy.
1: wild world if everyone spent a year covering the Trump-Biden head-to-head, and then neither of them, <laughs> potentially for very different reasons, end up yeah. being um, their respective party nominees. I, I
0: well, voters think- at large don't want a matchup between these two. No. These are These two are extremely Unpopular figures overall. Joe Biden is is unpopular within the Democratic Party. Um, or, or, I mean, or, or, yeah, there yeah. Are many people have a que- Democrats have a questions about his age, yeah. and and at least in the abstract would like a different car- uh, uh, candidate. Now, they, there's no specific alternative, and it's it's not like sure. they're saying, oh, we dump him, we want Gavin Newsom. Like that specific demand is not really materializing, I don't think, among Democratic voters. On the Republican side, Trump just has. He, I mean, he has the, the absolute ironclad loyalty of like, a min, of, of, like, a healthy contingent of Republican voters, and then you have other voters who like him and like what he, he did and are not going to go against him and not going to necessarily choose someone instead of him, but are not quite as loyal. But it, does, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, he I mean, has enough people there, to lock it up.
1: There is also some evidence that people don't love the Trump election fraud story. Obviously, the base use it as a reason to rally around no. him, and they believe it, in it. But it's been
0: poison for general election audiences. Poison. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, yeah yes. It's, it's they, been... they
1: don't like it. And the idea that we would really be getting to the nitty-gritty, I mean, no. I think Democrats, I've said this before, really did themselves a disservice. By making the events of literally one sixth at the Capitol the face of of the of the uh, fraud, <laughs> the face of, yeah. of the what he did wrong, when people start to really be forced to contend with, because it's potentially the Republican nominee that we're talking about, yeah. contend with what it meant to submit a fake slate, to conspire to send a fake slate of electors that ignored the electoral will of various states across the country to Congress with the aim of getting the vice president to say, actually, there's some question about which of these is real. I don't know. I guess we got to throw this to the House and have them decide who gets to be president as opposed to the voters' will. I don't think that's going to look good. I don't think people are going to love that. And on top of it just being the presidential candidate in in a messy case. The specifics of what he did, I think Americans have really been indoctrinated with the love of democracy, whatever that means. Democrats have been beating that drum, obviously, because they think that saying that the Republican Party is anti-democratic is a good talking point. I don't know that it's a great talking point now. I suspect that it might start to change if we are all publicly witnessing a trial. Of whether or not Donald Trump, quite literally, not just metaphorically, yeah. tried to subvert. I mean,
0: we've the we've run this process. experiment. We ran this experiment in the midterms, and the candidates that were most associated with um, relitigating the yeah. 2020 election in Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania lost close races that they could have and should have won in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada. Um, the Congress would be in Republican hands if you'd had. Ch- If you'd had Republican candidates who are just as conservative and have almost identical policies but had not run their entire campaigns on litigating the 2020 election, Um, that that is so clear now. It's just—you lose—I mean, you lose that persuadable chunk of voters. We're a very evenly split country. We're evenly split in a lot of these swing states. And it's so clear now that Trump and Trumpian candidates can't win— the people they need to win running on 2020. Nobody wants to run on 2020. Uh, Nobody even wants to even a the about Dyers, They want to t- talk about the economy. Talk about World War III that Joe Biden is going to about to get us into. Talk yeah. about the things that matter to Americans. Like it, it doesn't. It's not. <laughs> it's not what we wanted. It's, we don't want to rerun that. that okay, well,
1: that's a good point. Stick around because we will have an upcoming segment where we talk about Vivek Ramaswamy, a challenger yes. to Trump. Getting into exactly that issue, World War III, what's going on in the Middle East. So stay tuned. We'll have more Rising for you right
0: after this. Democratic Senator from Pennsylvania John Fetterman hit out at Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar after they assigned blame to Israel for the hospital attack in Gaza, something that was later found uh, to uh, be—there's much conflicting evidence that suggests that that was not the case. Fetterman wrote on X, it's truly disturbing that members of Congress rush to blame Israel for the hospital tragedy in Gaza. Who would take the word of a group that just massacred innocent Israeli civilians over our key ally?
1: Meanwhile, per National Reviews reporter John McCormick, former Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Minority Whip uh, H- Hakeem Jeffries, refused to call on the two congresswomen to retract their now-disputed claims. All this comes as Israel's defense minister c- told ground troops to be ready to enter the Gaza Strip, though he didn't say when the invasion will start. In a meeting with Israeli infantry soldiers on the Gaza border Thursday, Yoav Gallant urged forces to get organized, be ready, for an order to move in this is according to the associated press
0: so the latest i have seen now representative omar uh make a statement acknowledging the new intelligence um, i have not yet i may have missed it i've not seen anything from rashida talib um, who did also give the speech at the rally yesterday where she certainly still suggested that she thought it was it was Israel um, we've talked a lot about the hospital today in, in our first segment and I had a radar on this subject so people should check that out um, it's interesting to see Fetterman going after them you have more insights into inner democratic feuds than I do um, but so I don't know if they were maybe never on good terms but certainly Fetterman, was at one point i think perceived to be more in the yeah, he was left to be a progressive. mode on
1: but this isn't about class issues. terms usually. with them <laughs> i'm sorry it's about how influential apac is as a super pac within both parties i think when bernie sanders i think it was maybe in 2016 when he didn't go to apac it was like the first time a presidential candidate had ever not gone to the apac conference i mean the so, so you're saying
0: Fetterman made that statement because of the support he's received from APAC?
1: No, because nobody wants to get attacked by APAC. Nobody wants to have a challenger supported by APAC come after them because of their pro-Palestine beliefs. This happened. First of all, it happens re- repeatedly. APAC's track record. We were just reading the statistic: is 98% uh, with candidates they back. They uh, supported the candidate that was running against uh, Nina Turner very famously in the last two cycles in Ohio's 11th district. Someone who uh, Nina Turner was well, you know, polls showed that she was well slated to win. She was well known. She had been a local official in the past. She had some national prominence from being a, a co chair of Bernie's campaign. They found this woman, Chantel Brown, put a ton of money behind her, and she was able to eke it out. And the at the end of the day, I think the closer race was the one in twenty twenty one. Was that twenty twenty one? It was in the heat of COVID, is what I remember.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, so they have an incredibly high success rate. We've seen this happen again and again. The Intercept oh, but did what it.
0: What does that have to? But what's what's the APAC angle here?
1: The APAC angle is. Endorsing in any way, not coming out and condemning in the strongest terms, pro-Palestinian sentiments gets you a challenge. Often, this happened with Maxwell Frost. He's also considered to be a progressive, the youngest or the first Gen Z member of Congress down in Florida. His entire career, if you want to call it that, as John Fetterman is not
0: up for reelection. You're you're saying that John Fetterman will get primaried six years from now.
1: Yes. Literally, yes. Okay. The Intercept and others have covered this extensively. The the DMFI. What are you like? Incredulous now that like corruption and lobbying no, efforts no, no, are no,
0: successful. I think Fetterman probably made this statement because he thought Tlaib and Omar had done something wrong and embarrassing, and he wanted to. If that's what he believes, that, that that is
1: also perfectly possible. But we have, there's a long pattern of people who previously, and I don't I don't actually know what Fetterman has said in the past about Palestine, but people who have previously been not just. Kind of softly pro-Palestine, but made it a significant part of their uh, personality. Like Maxwell Frost down in Florida, who used to have uh, Palestine flags in his social media accounts, attended pal- pro-Palestine mm-hmm. rallies, was a an activist, like a like an actual activist, uh, pro-BDS, someone who very much was fighting for the liberation of the Palestinian people. Palestinian people. When he ran for office. He basically has admitted to reversing his position because he does not feel like politically it is viable for him to run and win, particularly in Florida, with the positions that he held before. And he gave a a string of interviews, including to Ryan Grimm at The Intercept, basically explaining that position. And you only have to look around and see at how successful DMFI has been in this area to understand why politicians would— Feel that pressure, and there was news uh, in the last couple of weeks. I think also reporting at the Intercept showing that there was some mobilizing around putting pressure on um, uh, politicians in the wake of the uh, of the attack on October seventh. So this is this is all in the background, I think, as you're trying to figure out why people who you who maybe thought were progressive, who maybe would have expected to come down differently on this, certainly any number of Congress members have said nothing, right? So the question is, and I think, what is in his heart? Of hearts here, many people have a feeling uh, of opinions. Opinions are like other body parts; everybody has one. <laughs> but the question is, why he feels like he needs to make this very public statement? What is he? What is? What is the political advantage of him having done so? Especially when it's going to raise questions like, is there a, like a, a faction? Is there? Is there discord within the ranks of progressives in Congress?
0: Well, maybe he thinks there's a political disadvantage for members of the Democratic. Coalition being so vocal on this issue in a way well, that opens is. them up to criticism as Omar and Talib did yesterday when the details got much more complicated.
1: I mean, there definitely is a political cost. There's an enormous political cost to taking a pro-Palestine position. That is indisputable. And but he didn't
0: say he didn't he didn't chide them for taking a pro-Palestine position. He chided them for jumping on the hospital story and then not saying anything to correct it. I would
1: also, like I said in your radar segment, I would also caution people not to jump in the other direction, especially what we know about, given the history of Israel lying about its own investigations into its own wrongdoing. So I, I don't know anything one way or the other. I think most of us don't know. But right now we have an internal Israeli report corroborated by U.S. intelligence and yeah. I think the same skepticism that we applied to Shireen Abu Akleh, the same skepticism that has been applied to the Nord Stream, the investigation of the Nord Stream bombing and all of that. I, mean, I was skeptical at first, applied. you can
0: look, you can check my Twitter feed. I had a tweet from very early yesterday morning saying, I can't imagine making any claims one way or the other at this point, it's not very clear. Yeah. Subsequent to me, writing that tweet, um, I think the, uh, again, the evidence of the video footage I saw, the fact that the impact is act- was actually the parking lot. The, um, um, the, the, the time frame of when the alert came in from that the, that the hospital had been struck, um, all of that, again, moves the dial to—I think it's likely that it was, in fact, the Palestinian Jihad group. I, it, you're right, it's not 100 percent proven definitively, and we could learn more information, but I'm, I'm confident to say— that is more likely, based on what I, I
1: think. Know. Actually, we do have a clip that gets to some of this new reporting that's come out of the last in the last day or so from Channel Four News that did some of the analysis of the video record. Uh, the, sorry, the audio recording that Israel uh, proffered, which it says proves or at least strongly indicates that the uh, bomb was not uh, the explosive was not set off by them. Um, here you. Uh, Here, Alex Thompson, the reporter who was involved in that investigation, saying several experts that he spoke to confirm Hamas's view to Channel 4 News that the audio tape of Hamas operatives talking about the missile malfunction is a fake. They say tone, syntax, accent, and idiom are absurd. Now, that could just mean that it wasn't the IDF. But there, that just raised questions as to whether or not, why the IDF, why Israel would put forward yeah. a fake video if it weren't a cover of I the mean, So up we, we played
0: that audio yeah. yesterday on the show. Honestly, I was slightly reluctant to do so because I wasn't putting a lot of stock in it necessarily. I, I don't know that it's accurate. That piece of evidence is not really what is motivating me um, either way. It's the it, it's the impact crater, the independent experts suggesting it that that is more in line with what the Palestinian capabilities are, rather than the Israeli capabilities, and then actually seeing the video of the rockets being launched from the Palestinian position and the hospital being but hit the in the midst of that. But what's the Palestinian position?
1: Because, again, part of the Channel 4 News investigation was pointing out that when Israel gave the presentation uh, earlier this week— Explaining why it wasn't them and why mm-hmm. it was uh, the Islamist Jihad, the presentation itself included included two separate locations for where they say the bomb was launched. For so I just yeah, all I'm still, saying is that there's a lot of ambiguity. Also, the, um, there in
0: was a, people were putting a lot of stock in the um, in the assertion that Israel, the Israeli forces, had warned the hospital mm-hmm. that it was going to be struck. But now it looks like again, this is, we, we don't know that we could get more information to contradict some of this. But now uh, what I think even the hospital has said is that. They and other hospitals had been warned in recent days about about the danger. They were not specifically warned that an Israeli attack was specifically imminent. So I that mean, pe- people out are finding some
1: of that. that a little dubious as well. They, so they were war- this, the, the allegation from Israel is that this was a rocket malfunction. No. So they knew that a that a Islamic Jihad rocket was going to malfunction and hit this hospital. Mean, so I, I think I'll, it was I'll a general use-
0: warning to vacate the because area it might be a rocket and
1: malfunction
0: just because it was a dangerous area and then obviously i'm not like saying like what are the people the people many people in the hospital can't be moved where else are they supposed to go right. not saying it was a useful warning but yeah. the idea that they were specifically warned that israel is about to hit the hospital sure. was apparently not true
4: yeah i
1: i'm really interested i really hope reporters keep doing their jobs and digging into this because people deserve to know what really happened here we yeah. do have some breaking news just this afternoon israel's defense minister has promised a ground invasion of Gaza, telling Israeli troops to be ready to see the region, quote, from the inside. According to reporting from antiwar.com, President Biden has backed the ground invasion privately despite his warnings against civilian casualties. Mm. Who And people should listen to our interview today with Trita Parsi, who talks in some detail about why a ground invasion could be potentially catastrophic, including bringing in American troops into that particular conflict that could really spread far beyond uh, Israel and Palestine.
0: We will keep following the news as it pertains to this subject, and we'll have more rising right after this.
1: what a treat. (laughs) A radar after all this time. What is on your radar today?
0: We'll see if you still feel that (laughs) way after I'm done. All right, here we go. Ben Collins is a reporter for NBC News who specializes in coverage of disinformation and extremism, particularly on social media. His work has earned him many plaudits, including a 2023 Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Television Political Journalism. Collins is treated as an expert in the burgeoning field of countering the spread of misinformation, yet his error rate is noteworthy. Take the Gaza hospital explosion, for example. On Tuesday, reports surfaced that the hospital in Gaza had come under attack, resulting in as many as 500 deaths. The New York Times ran with this headline, Israel strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. Underneath this headline was an image of an obliterated building. Readers who squinted would have noticed that this was not a hospital, but a completely different target. The Times' only source for information about the explosion was the Gaza Health Ministry. Mainstream reporting noted that Palestinian authorities laid the blame squarely on an Israeli airstrike. Now, Subsequent intelligence reports from both Israel and the U.S. provide somewhat compelling evidence that the hospital was most probably struck by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a terrorist group. Did Collins soberly wait for these facts to come in? Nope. The award-winning disinformation expert helped circulate the inaccurate claims of the Palestinian authorities. When other voices on social media recommended caution, Collins chimed in responding to assert that any delay in reporting the horrific casualty numbers represented a profound moral failing. Casualty estimates, by the way, have yet to be confirmed. Now, in theory, the confusion surrounding the hospital explosion is a great topic for a self-described disinformation reporter. Many left-leaning writers and political figures recklessly endorsed the Palestinian view that Israel had bombed the hospital. Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar both made such statements blaming Israel did not swiftly delete them after that became more complicated. Eventually, Omar did acknowledge the new information, but Tlaib again blamed Israel for the explosion during a speech she made at a pro-Palestinian rally outside the U.S. Capitol yesterday. Now, is this not something worthy of coverage and correction by Collins and company? Keep in mind that Collins represents the journalistic side of a multifaceted effort to monitor and eliminate purportedly wrong ideas. Disinformation tracking has become an industry unto itself, and aspects of this industry enjoy government funding. A disinformation watchdog group that called on advertisers to divest from various non-liberal news sources, including Reason Magazine, where I also work, received funding from the U.S. State Department. Disinformation reporters often seem interested in sparring only with contrarian people and in defense of the mainstream narratives. They spar with Matt Taibbi, with Glenn Greenwald, with Elon Musk, and others. Collins, for instance, is obsessed with these people. He downplayed the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. What a surprise. He also denied that there was any effort to censor the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origins, even after ceaseless revelations that various government agencies pressured social media companies to de-platform contrarian speech about precisely these topics. Collins' reporting often contains basic errors that suggest he doesn't particularly understand the right-wing forces he's denouncing. His most recent article alleges that Musk's plans for Twitter were shaped by a far-right former Trump administration staffer, even though it's fairly clear that staffer wasn't actually telling Musk what to do, but rather warning Musk what he thought would happen to Musk if he offended the regime. If that sounds conspiratorial, try to follow this clip of Collins and MSNBC's Rachel Maddow hallucinating this sinister Musk plan. I I cannot possibly describe this clip, so just watch it.
6: And, I mean, the the thing about the Anti-Defamation League being the target here is this is a Jewish civil rights organization. To have these two things line up, where you've got these recommendations to Musk to do all these things that he has done that will elicit the reaction that has occurred, and then he should blame a Jewish civil rights group, to have that, along with people proposing that sort of roadmap publicly, um, who are associated with white nationalists. Um and the very i mean the a, a, a ragged far right fringe so distasteful to even the Trump White House that they felt the need to fire somebody from the White House who was espousing these kinds of views and associating with these people i mean that that to me just feels like like um like fireworks, it just feels like an incredibly dangerous thing
7: yeah if you actually look back through this and I you know I've talked to a lot of people on the Elon Musk beat over the last few months and um what they want to say to you is that while all of this stuff looks like chaos and nonsense and like he doesn't know what he's doing, it's possible this guy had a plan. And just because a plan is bad and leads to bad outcomes for almost everybody doesn't mean he didn't have a plan. And that's what we saw, you know, coming out. of. This. Can I just read you to the end of this article? Because it's kind of fascinating. He says, the globalist American yeah. empire will never be brought down unless people like Elon Musk are ready to step up to the plate with the genuinely bold, risky, and meaningful moves like buying and liberating Twitter. But it will not be easy, it will be war. Let the battle begin." That's what was texted him, by the way, um, at the end there. Um, And then they recommend hiring a, you know, like a CEO of enforcement, which they wound up doing with Linda Iaccarino. Um, Basically one-to-one, this strategy happened in real time on Twitter. So I'm just suggesting, maybe think about this as a plan. It's a bad plan for you and me, But it may have been a plan all along.
0: What? If you're going to paint broad swaths of opinion that depart from the mainstream orthodoxies as paranoid and conspiratorial, you should probably take greater pains to avoid echoing paranoia and conspiracy. You should also beware of elementary errors, like immediately taking a terrorist group's assertion at face value, and call out others who make them. Now, perhaps the Walter Cronkite awards ought to have slightly higher standards, Collins, of course, not the only journalist who gets things wrong, happens to everyone. But I think there's something extra galling about journalistic errors when they are perpetrated by someone who holds himself out as especially talented at identifying lies. And that's the real problem with this army of self-appointed fact-checkers and misinformation watchdogs who police social media with particular focus on alternative content creators like us. They're frequently no less wrong than anyone else. Earlier this week, Reuters reported that U.S. lawmakers were, quote, seeking answers from Meta, X, Google, and TikTok about the spread of false information on those platforms. Deceptive content has ricocheted across social media sites in the, since the conflict began, sometimes receiving millions of views. That was Senator Michael Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, writing a letter to those companies. His framing totally ignores the fact that some of the most pernicious misstatements about the situation in Gaza were peddled by the mainstream, by journalistic institutions like the New York Times. On social media, there's some wrong stuff, but people are also able to challenge prevailing narratives that the expert class has blindly accepted. For instance, Community Notes, the crowdsourced Wikipedia-style fact-checking system on X, is often able to provide useful context about claims that appear on the platform from both sides. Disinformation reporters, on the other hand, are extremely partisan, and they're prone to error. Let's stop pretending they have some special magical power to separate the truth from the lies. No one has that power.
1: Yeah, so I, I guess I don't disagree about people who hold themselves out as experts. I don't know that I take the lesson as as the lesson from the uh, hospital bombing controversy that anyone should be making very definitive claims in the other direction. I mean, I do think it is very healthy to, to be skeptical of... Hamas' claims, it's also important to be very skeptical of Israel's claims and the IDF's claims, especially because I don't know much about Hamas, but I do know from several stories, including those that we've covered here on this show, that the IDF has a pattern of repeatedly lying when it is under scrutiny for its own bad behavior. Most notably—and I mentioned this in another um, segment—the murder of American Palestinian journalist um, Shireen Abu Akhla uh, by an IDF member. For about a year, if I recall correctly, they flatly denied the IDF's uh, fault. Uh, The story continues to shift as more and more culpability and media attention was paid toward it. This is from a statement that the IDF made a press release In June of 2022, they go out of their way to say, it's not just us investigating. The PLO, the Palestinian Authority, is involved in this investigation. And the IDF investigation clearly concludes that Ms. Abu Akleh was not intentionally shot by an IDF soldier and that it is not possible to determine whether she was killed by a Palestinian gunman shooting indiscriminately in her area or inadvertently by an IDF soldier. Cut to, like, half a year later, and because of other investigations and continued pressure from media figures who are interested in finding out the truth and not just getting points for being on the right side of something or another, the Israel, the Israel Defense Forces have admitted for the first time that there is a, quote, high possibility that she was shot by their own and eventually was forced to apologize. So I, I do think even now—like, I, I, I also believed the other night that it seemed likely that the IDF was responsible, largely because— if it were true that the, uh, the, the hospital was demolished, there is no pattern, there is no history, there is no precedent for Hamas having rockets at the power to be able to do that. When the sun came up, and the building was still standing, I think that that undermined the strongest argument for why it had to be the IDF. But I still don't see a very strong argument for why it had to be this Islamist Jihad, Islamist Jihad group or Hamas. And so I'm interested to see a little bit more in the way of investigation that is not Israel and not just the, ID, the the United States in conjunction with Israel, given that we've seen how our, we well, yeah, lost I, up with our greatest ally. No,
0: no disagreement that you should be skeptical of things government says to you, that goes for Israel's government, that goes for the U.S. government, that goes for Russia, that goes for China. The nature of government is to deceive people if there's information that looks bad for various officials or for an administration or something like that. Of course, I would never be saying, well, you just have to blindly trust what what you've told. Our government misled us about the strength of the intelligence regarding so many—so uh, many things. You know, we've debunked um, mainstream thinking and reporting and intelligence on, on a lot of national security topics. Um, all, all that said, it looks to me like the bulk of, of evidence, even evidence that is sort of, I would say, independently available, including video footage I've now seen of rockets coming from the Palestinian side, and then and then it's showing the, the, the hospital. It, perimeter being hit at that exact time period seems to line up and be very consistent with yeah, I mean, um, I the Palestinians. So I'm— there
1: has I, been this We should, four we should investigation wait and hear more, but that I think points it's out that In Israel's old presentation about what happened, they cite two different launch places, launch sites, for the rocket. So there's inconsistency even with their own stories still. So again, I, I think that the— what I have learned from this, and what I hope most people have learned from this, is just to take a beat. And I do think that there is um, pressure, especially online, To come out and say conclusively what you feel, I think that's fine. Like it's Mm -hmm. not really that harmful. It's regular people just going through the evidence and trying to weigh it back and forth. But for journalists and people who are considered to be holding a higher public trust and have investigative tools at their disposal,
0: it's just worth waiting a bit. Right, and that's what I'm really irritated about because he had Ben Collins had replies to people being saying that it was it was morally blameworthy to have any delay in in reporting the casualty numbers. And, like, we we don't know. And, and again, we all make these kinds of mistakes, especially in heated, breaking news situations like this. But I just think people who hold themselves out— I mean, I I don't— Frankly, I don't like this entire category of— of, uh, of reporting this misinformation framing because w- we have been targeted by it yeah. and a lot of people who have independent and contrarian ideas like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald have also been targeted by it and it's partly government funded and it's wholly aimed at it encouraging censorship. So I'm going to I'm gonna use every opportunity to, <laughs> to, to, ha- to twist the knife when I see uh, I mistakes of this, I of this size. We'll have more rising right after this.
1: UFO info about to come to light. The government released its latest UFO report yesterday. Some key findings from the report, according to former Department of Defense official under President Barack Obama, some UAP has potentially exhibited concerning performance characteristics, such as high-speed travel or unusual maneuverability. Uh, an arrow has deconflicted. De- uh, conflicted these cases with potential U.S. programs. None of these UAP reports have been positively attributed to foreign activities. Well, according to News Nation Washington correspondent Joe Khalil, there will be two members-only briefings, including one with the Department of Defense Inspector General Robert P. Storch and another with Inspector General of the Intelligence Community Thomas A. Monheim. He continued, the intel community, according to UAP UFO whistleblower David Grush, has specific info— Grush provided that he couldn't share publicly. News Nation has learned that Representative Tim Burchett and other lawmakers will soon gain access to the classified, sensitive, compartmentalized information facility room where they will be able to view UAP documents. Here's Tim Burchett with more on what may be expected.
2: Do you go into the SCIF with
6: David Grush or do you just go through the documents that he has assembled for you?
8: I believe, first of all, we'll go through with the documents. That would be a secondary thing, which I understand is in the works as well. But but uh, well, from what I understand, there's a lot more than Grush out there. Dave's a buddy of mine. But there's a lot more than Grush out there that, that have this information, and, and we're going to get to it. And that's why people are very nervous, and they should be at the Pentagon, because they've been covering this thing up since 1947. And now, all of a sudden, hey, 55 percent of America believes that, that it, there, there's, there's something else out there.
0: According to Mark Von Rennenkampf, legislation titled the reverse engineering programs and offers legal amnesty if individuals with knowledge of materials come forward within six months. He tweeted, Extraordinary UFO legislation zeroes in on abuse of independent research and development read, provisions to illegally hide UAP retrieval and reverse engineering programs from Congress. In a historic congressional hearing, Grush specifically mentions IRAD. Is that a coincidence? Joining us now to discuss is opinion contributor at The Hill, Mark von Rennenkamp. Thank you so much for being with us.
8: Thanks for having me back, guys.
0: So this sounds like we finally may, or at least Tim Burchett may, finally get to see some actual uh, documentation that has been alluded to, hinted at, but not made broadly available to the public. How big a deal is this potentially?
8: I think it could potentially be extraordinarily significant or more likely it could be less significant because as we've seen over and over and over again the government likes to play this this game uh they do uh, they go through these extraordinary verbal gymnastics um to kind of hide what's actually going on um whether that's all coordinated or not i don't know it's a good question but look the bottom line is inspectors general um, which are the the internal investigative uh, bodies within government agencies are generally very, very cagey about speaking about active investigations. And I think it's fair to assume, and, and individuals have reported that um, that there is an active investigation, a potentially fairly significant investigation into um, the whistleblower's claims of a, of a crash retrieval program. So, um, boy, it could be explosive, but I- I'm going to temper my expectations and err on on the side of Um, the inspectors general will be cagey and will give minimal uh, information at at best at this point.
1: But this access to this classified sensitive compartmentalized information facility room, seems to me to be about whether or not people can look at primary documents, right? The the foundational evidence that's supposed to support some of the claims that we've heard whistleblowers raise at the hearings we've had so far, but they've been been typically said things like, I know someone who saw something, I don't have the first-hand knowledge. Does access to this room mean that whoever comes out of there is going to be able to say, I saw photos of X, or a piece of the whole of Y or DNA tissue of Z?
8: We would hope that all of that evidence is gonna be carefully and artfully laid out in front of Tim Burchett. Tim Burchett is known as um, uh, being very outspoken and has very little, has openly expressed these very little trust in the executive branch. So again, um, I, I would be cautious about the Inspector General just opening up the books here for, for Congressman Burchett and all, and all the other members that um, will be in the, in the skiff in that com, uh, compartmentalized information facility. Um, I don't know is the answer, but um, I, would, I would hesitate to, to go down the path that they're just going to go full kimono and open everything up at this point.
0: This subject has been um, very in the news um, lately over the last several weeks and months. Uh, we've covered a lot here at The Hill. Uh, news Nation, our, uh, our sister channel, has done a lot of great work, including that initial David Grush interview. Um, I, I, I worry that as, as the focus of the nation and so much of the news media turns toward—understandably turns toward what's going on in Israel-Palestine, that there could be a easing off of the pressure to actually deliver what has been suggested by whistleblowers with respect to the UAP subject, and there will be some— Opportunity to, I guess, get away with it again, if that's the right terminology. If there is, in fact, stuff being hidden from us, is that a rational fear that I have,
8: Robbie? It is, but I'll, maybe I'll provide some counterpoints out there. And first, all, I'll agree with you. Yes, absolutely. There, there are several other narratives. I mean, we could look just at the the turmoil, if we want to call it that, in the House um, in terms of leadership. That's another element that is um, putting up some roadblocks to some really extraordinary legislation, UFO related legislation that was proposed by Senator Schumer. So that, that's another hurdle. But um, I, I think with the gravitas of somebody like Senator Schumer proposing the remarkable legislation that he did, and I'll just quickly recap, it, it mentions and defines non-human intelligence, mentions it 24 times, and it basically reads like a carbon copy of the whistleblower's um, allegations that, that there is a, a secret, illegally run, Um, UFO retrieval and reverse engineering effort. And that is that legislation was proposed by the uh, the Senate majority leader. So I I have a hard time, yes, there are competing stories and these are very important stories, um, but I have a hard time thinking that that would overrule um, this very significant legislation. I would also add just very briefly um, that there's a separate piece of legislation, part of a larger bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, sorry to go down all these rabbit holes, but Um, I I know you guys have expressed and I share this somewhat, some frustration about kind of a lack of details and evidence and and I think you guys have maybe expressed a a put up or shut up kind of mentality which I again I sympathize with, Um, but I want to highlight that that legislation, this other piece of legislation, um, it grants what's known as immunity or safe harbor to individuals who have knowledge of these potential secret programs. It gives them six months after President Biden signs the legislation, if it's passed as it, as it is written. It gives them six months, the clock starts ticking. And if they come forward in that time, they will not be uh, subject to legal uh, charges or, or um, legal jeopardy. So I, I want to just point out that there is significant legislation. I don't think it'll go away despite all the, the significant events that are happening. And there is a, a countdown um, if that is passed as it is written.
1: Mark, thank you so much for staying on top of this and talking with us today.
8: Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Some big free speech stories here. Major news networks are reportedly sidelining Palestinian analysts And reporters amid the eruption of violence in the Middle East. CBS News streaming reportedly intervened to pull a clip of human rights attorney Nora Erekat. And two Palestinian analysts allegedly had CNN appearances canceled after describing what they planned to say on the Israel-Hamas war. And the backlash doesn't stop there. Model Gigi Hadid posted her take on the Israel-Hamas war online last week. And now she's receiving death threats? Hadid wrote in an Instagram post last week, I have deep empathy for the heartbreak for the Palestinian struggle and life under occupation. It's a responsibility I hold daily. I also feel a responsibility to my Jewish friends to make it clear, as I have before, while I have hopes and dreams for Palestinians. None of them include the harm of a Jewish person. The terrorizing of innocent people is not in alignment with and does not do any good for the free Palestine movement.
0: Hadid also posted a photo this past week that read, there's nothing Jewish about the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians. Condemning the Israeli government is not anti-Semitic and supporting Palestinians is not supporting Hamas. Following that post, Hadid found herself in the crosshairs of the State of Israel's Instagram account, reposting a version of the infographic Hadid shared, but changing the original words, and it, that account wrote, there's nothing valiant about Hamas's massacre of Israelis condemning Hamas for what it is, is not anti-Palestine. Now,
1: since this, the entire Hadid family have reportedly been receiving ominous messages that make them fear for their lives via email, social media, and their phone numbers that were allegedly... Leaked. Mm. Okay, so what is interesting about the response is that one, it's the state of Israel's official social media account that is picking fights with random Palestinian American social media figures, models, people who don't aren't yeah. familiar with the Hadid sisters that came to prominence because they're in the world of these kind of influencers. Their mother was a real housewife, their father is uh, Palestinian. Uh, they co- cavort around with the Kardashians and things have like that. I had the vaguest
0: idea of who this was <laughs> when you suggested we talk about right. it. One, I What say that.
1: One married to a One Direction boy, all of those kinds of things. But they, they are, I think, some of the more notable Palestinian-Americans mm-hmm. around. They have always been passionate about Palestine. But as you could see in the initial um, response that they wrote, they were unequivocal about con- condemning Hamas. Yeah, no,
0: I, I don't object to this statement whatsoever. And it so seems fine.
1: That's what's so odd about the uh, response. Not only it that it's odd. like the state... The state, Israeli state.
0: Yeah, um, that would be inappropriate. Account.
1: But then also that the state media account seemed to completely ignore what she had actually said and said uh, tried to imply, very strongly implied, that she was in any way endorsing Hamas or indifferent to the tragedy that befell those thirteen hundred odd Jewish people on October seventh, Israelis on October seventh.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's important. And, and again, speaks to what we're the, the line we're trying to draw, which is that Hamas does is not synonymous with all Palestinians or all of Palestine, but is a is a separate terror group, among whose victims are the innocent Palestinians uh, in the region. So I don't see any problem with what she said, and I and I don't know why the Israeli government had to get involved. And I do want to more broadly caution uh, organizations and entities, and especially governments, but really everyone. You know, as we've talked about earlier. This kind of cancel culture stuff. Certainly, we can't violate anybody's First Amendment free speech rights. People have the right to protest. People have the right to to say things that you or I might think are idiotic, um, but they have the right to do it. It's our most cherished and beloved um, uh, uh, right. Um, you know, we've had Michael Schellenberger on the show a couple times this week to talk mm-hmm. about that, to talk about what's going on in in other countries where mm-hmm. where the first where they don't have First Amendment rights. They should. They don't. Their it's, free speech rights yeah. are being very blatantly violated. In and, uh, in the UK, and in, in Germany, Germany. And in France, Yeah.
1: Um, a woman I think it was in France said that she was arrested yeah. after she, you know, said like Bismillah, some like basic Arabic like greeting to another person. Um, there was that uh, Suella Braverman, is that her name? The 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 uh, UK official who uh, advised that. It might not be appropriate, legal to carry a Palestinian flag, and there were a string of arrests uh, that were caught on video in the UK after she yeah. made that proclamation. France tried to outlaw uh, Palestinian yeah. anything pro-Palestine, and the French weren't having it. You know how the French do; they've been in the streets in throngs, yeah. and I don't know how well they're going to enforce anything it, like that.
0: We're so used to our First Amendment norms, and they're they're fairly robustly protected. They've been litigated at the Supreme Court so many times, and they're they're among are kind of less contested. They're they're among our most clear, I think, broadly established rights. Obviously, there's still a lot of First Amendment cases all the time. But everybody really gets that, sorry, you just can't arrest someone for burning the American flag. Yeah. And if you try, you're going to get Eventually the court's going to say you absolutely can't do that yeah. and there's going to be a massive judgment. Of it. So we, we yeah. get that in America. So it just, but it, they don't have that in Europe. In fact, in France,
1: the, the the French Council of State yesterday rejected an appeal on its ban of pro-Palestine yeah. protests. They say it's the top good. court in France says that France France's pro-Palestine protest ban is okay. And again, I think Glenn raised this point when he was on the other day, or maybe it was when I was talking to him last night on his show. He pointed out, even if you believe that, it was OK to ban protests because you think that it's inciting violence and there's a state interest in doing so. It is very telling that pro-Israel protests are not being banned. These are, Can you imagine? Many people were, were putting forward this uh, hypothetical last week when the news was that three prominent hosts at MSNBC seemed to be pulled from their hosting responsibilities, Mehdi Hassan, uh, Ali Velsher—and I forget the last person's name—and um, they were doing the thought experiment. Can you imagine if a station's only three Jewish hosts? were being pulled from the air at this time in this crisis because of some perception of bias. People would be outraged, and rightly so. So I do think that the Gigi Hadid example is particularly pernicious, one, because it is the state of Israel's uh, own account, and two, because I think it's reflective of a broader kind of um, investment that Israel has had in having a lot of control over messaging about Israel for years. Um, The APAC PAC is, if not the biggest, one of the biggest um, PACs that exists in the United States. That's the Israel PAC. And you can see from the behavior of a number of elected officials how reluctant they are to go against it. Bernie Sanders, who of course is Jewish himself, uh, his entire family uh, outside of his parents was wiped out in the Holocaust got targeted by uh, a large uh, a large amount of APAC money after he won I think it was the Nevada race a disproportionate amount of spending that seemed to pay off and why well Bernie Sanders had some mild frankly in the grand scheme of things criticism of the oppression of um, Palestinians but they you know th- that that has largely been not allowed in the public discourse until now and I think we're seeing this play out um, as we as we head into week two of the wake of the tragedy on October 7th Yeah,
0: there have been too many uh, in the American context there have been too many um, I think calls for uh, for blacklisting and um, and you know not not calls for well I mean maybe there have been some calls for but not serious efforts to um, to v- violate in a very direct way the First Amendment rights but we believe in a culture of free speech as well. I've criticized efforts to, you know, broadly get fired or expelled or unpersoned or whatever, people who make maybe regrettable, maybe not, political statements or jokes or things when they're young, all that, all that kind of stuff. So in that same vein, I really think we ought to be a lot more careful and people should not have such a knee jerk like, oh, who do you work for? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stop you. Uh, right now we're doing... Like there's a lot going on with um, with donors to universities are uh, are rescinding or are threatening that they're going to rescind oh, their yeah, donations to universities over over perception. What's well, happening in a lot of other places mm-hmm. too? Penn State, uh, uh, Penn State, I think, uh, some maybe Columbia, a couple other places. And look, again, no one is is obligated to donate to any cause that they don't. Uh, I I might probably what I would say to a lot of these wealthy philanthropists is like, is this the first time you're realizing that like. The institution or the students there have values you don't agree with or don't yeah, align it's, with. It's, it's like not just about now. That. It's, it's,
1: it's not it's not about that. And I think it's about sending a very no. strong message that certain kind of speech is not gonna be tolerated. And I do think there's like a power differential here. Um, I I I don't I don't I wouldn't advise if I had a child or was mentoring a young person that they want to shut down debate on their campus. I wouldn't advise it, but I also don't think a kid having an opinion about a speaker is as significant or powerful as a multi-million dollar donor to the, the university, trying to coerce what the university does by withdrawing its donations, it's a, it's, a, it's their right. But what should be more concerning for the public interest? One other example that we haven't raised yet is a professor at Berkeley, a University of California, which is supposed to be this progressive bastion, just was allowed to write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, don't hire my anti-Semitic law students.
0: Yeah, I saw that. That is, that well, is. Well, I mean, they have the professor has the right to say that. Yeah.
1: But who is getting the right to write these articles in the Wall Street Journal? This was an issue with Emma Camp as well when people were criticizing what was going on there. It does seem that repeatedly the people with the more conservative position are allowed these huge and powerful forums to make their speech known and let their voices be heard, while at the same time saying, oh, I'm the the small boy, I'm the the victim in this scenario. I have yet to see any pro-Palestinian law professors or anybody else get these same opportunities. And I'm not seeing pro-Palestinian mega-donors saying we're going to bring Harvard to its knees by withdrawing our multi-million dollar I, corporations. I, I, or any I, banks, I, remember what happened to Kanye West, who was anti-Semitic, to be clear. But um, J.P. Morgan okay. making the choice to terminate that baking uh, relationship, I. but not Epstein's I baking have relationship.
0: I have seen pro-Palestinian commentary make its way I would broadly say—you you brought up my colleague Emma Camp. I mean, she was speaking about n- not specifically the Israel-Palestine issue. The campuses are uh, maybe not uh, um, respectful enough or or, um, or platforming enough, for your viewpoint, like, explicitly left opinion, but they're, they are hotbeds of generally liberal and progressive places, right, conservative students are outnumbered wildly on elite campuses. The, the campuses give like 99.9% of their donations to the Democratic Party, the faculty do. But so let's not overemphasize look, it's, it's a meritocracy.
1: It seems to me that conservatives need to just be getting better test scores, and then maybe there would be more of them at Harvard.
0: <laughs> well, um, Fortunately, the I test kid, scores are not the I only kid. things that get taken into consideration. You're right. Legacy is
1: 30% of uh, Harvard's I think uh, there admission.
0: are a few other factors there, but uh, we'll leave it there. More rising right after this. Tucker carlson is out with a new episode of his show taking aim at the looming threat of another world war of the us getting dragged into the israel-palestine
5: conflict let's watch how he introduced this segment he had raised what is the best path forward here for the united states as well as for israel and the rest of the world it's worth thinking about that the stakes are higher than many americans understand it's easy to imagine several other nations getting pulled into the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Those countries would include Russia, Iran, Turkey, China, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and possibly many more. Some of those countries might take our side, aligned with Israel, but most of them would not, and that would be a problem. The US military is weaker than it's been in at least 50 years since the end of Vietnam. Exhausted by two pointless conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, Internally divided by identity politics, mismanaged by buffoonish hacks at the Pentagon, our services are in obvious disarray. Check the enlistment numbers. Nobody wants to join. But it's worse than that. The government that funds our army is bankrupt. The man who leads it is senile. Now is not the time for a world war. We would lose.
1: Later, Vivek, wait in. Let's take a listen to that.
5: How could this go wrong? So I think that one of the things we ought to do is remember the mistakes we have made in our own
8: recent past, in the last 20 to 25 years. After 9-11, how did we end up in $6 trillion plus of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, thousands of American lives that we won't get back? Part of how we ended up there was in the era after 9-11, you remember it. The tolerance for debate was very limited. Shut up, sit down, do as you're told, go along with the plan. I am worried, Tucker. That's the beginning of the environment I'm seeing right now, as it relates to the
0: current conflicts. We see. So I'm glad, as I've said before, that at least one of the GOP candidates, Vivek Ramaswamy, and then Tucker Carlson, who's one of the biggest and most influential um, conservative. Uh, media figures certainly was when he was a part of Fox News and I think his foreign policy analysis is just sorely missed right now yeah. in the in the broader conservative media ecosystem because he is speaking for they are speaking for a whole lot of conservatives a whole lot of people on the right who um, are not you know who are not expressing any sympathy to be clear for Hamas who are not saying that Israel going after Hamas is inappropriate, but are saying, what is the U.S.'s role in all of this, and are we going to end up being slow-walked, or or maybe faster than slow-walked, into a broader conflict that is not in the U.S.'s interest, it's not in Israel's interest, it's not in Palestine's interest, it's not in the world's interest. And Vivek is so, so correct How soon we forget so correct to bring up the immediate post 9-11 landscape where, unfortunately, our political leaders got way too much leeway to do whatever they wanted with respect to American policy and also with respect to domestic policy in terms of the Patriot Act, the surveillance. We're still going through the asinine airport security um, uh, regime that got invented at the time that does not make us any safer whatsoever. It's just a waste of time for all Americans, a massive waste of money. Um, But That we enshrined, that we enshrined because the People were understandably afraid, and our political leaders took advantage of that. That is not something we want to forget, and uh, and I, I, I want to hear even more people on the right echo what Vivek and Tucker said there. What's
1: What's wild is that not only did people not learn the lesson of nine eleven, but nine eleven is being evoked currently as a reason for why there should be more escalation. Yeah. People are arguing, well. America got to go and do a 20-year war, so why don't we get to do that? Right. Like why it is somehow you're, uh, it's a double standard for you to say that Israel shouldn't make America's right. exact same mistakes. So I completely second, you know, it's a weird world to be in, frankly as a progressive, but it is undeniably true that Tucker Carlson's voice of moderation in the foreign policy context is sorely missed at Fox News. I think I mentioned this on the pod, on the on the show or earlier this week that I have a friend who says that his dad watches Fox exclusively and is Israeli and is, uh, what could it be convinced by someone like Tucker Carlson but that he's having a really hard time with getting him to see any other shade of this conflict because there really is no other voice making that case, a case that is very popular yeah. among so many Republicans and independents, but no longer a voice on Fox News that is anywhere close to that.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if there's... Uh, you know I, Jesse Waters is often good on civil liberties issues, has spoken out against um, great, some of the greater... Um, like uh, like surveillance bills of social media companies that you know the, the one aimed at TikTok that was also going to like really result in censorship and all the other uh, fronts and he he dragged Lindsey Graham on his show and yelled at him about it so you know I'm, I'm hopeful there can be more a th- a thoughtful commentary from other uh, conservatives I saw Matt Walsh actually I saw him disagreeing with Ben Shapiro about what oh, the yeah. U.S. response should mm-hmm. be because there are, there are different strains in conservative thought and in Republican thought. Mm-hmm. Um, on foreign policy, there are divisions. There's not unanimity of thought, but the "let's slow down, let's not get involved in another war" is a more popular view on the right than um, than a lot of people realize because it doesn't have as many it doesn't have as many public facing advocates yeah. as as befits. It's at the actual size, which is why people get surprised every time there's a really charismatic anti-interventionist figure like Donald Trump, like Ron Paul before him, um, like Tucker Carlson, uh, who ends up with a huge audience, a huge, a huge following, tons of supporters, yeah. because uh, because it's a, it's a you know it's a it's a buyer's market or, or whatever yeah. the correct terminology is. Yeah, I mean it's also
1: confusing because so many of the people who occupy this position with respect to Ukraine, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, immediately. I don't know right. if you want to call it a flip-flop or just it's a different context, different feelings, are are, are zeal- zealously uh, eager to support Israel in any way, um, including getting yeah. American involved in a it's To, to Biden's Sorry, credit, he did make these comments saying um, that Israel needs to avoid making the mistakes of 9-11. He made that uh, those remarks at the speech when he was um, speaking in Israel earlier this week. But when it's also being reported, as we covered earlier on the show, that he has privately told... Benjamin Netanyahu, that we have his back and are willing to send troops to help uh, fight this this blossoming, burgeoning war. That is even more concerning, because it shows that he has some public awareness that this is unpopular, that we should know better, and yet, for whatever reason, is still willing to make that private commitment.
0: Many Republican members need time to go back to their districts. Mm. Hold some town halls, talk to your voters, mm-hmm. see what they think about this. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to lose support for them for strongly condemning Hamas and, and speaking out about the evils Israel has suffered and for, and frankly for even affirming Israel's right to self-defense and to taking many of the actions it's taking now. But when when they talk about what the U.S.'s response is and and military support, and whether there should be troops and whether Israel should have this be escalated to the point where there's greater conflict in the Middle East that we're involved in. Ask conservative Republicans who voted for you what they think about that. I think a lot of members are going to be surprised what hey, they hear. Democrats, should, hear, do <laughs> Democrats yes. should do well,
4: it, yes. too. Democrats should do it, too. Yes. Well, yes. And,
0: you know, 100 percent. And sometimes it feels like the Democratic consensus on this stuff is even—is is like more unanimous, frankly. Yeah. Not to say there aren't—there aren't people, uh, you know, a couple people on the left um, who are um, uh, who are very disinclined to do continuous war funding.
1: And the activists I think, the activist, activist, activist community sure. is very much on the left, as you saw from the protesters in the Capitol yesterday. Uh, those Jewish groups, um, Code Pink groups like that, are very much left-leaning. But absolutely, when it comes to Congress, it's a, it's a two-headed snake.
0: Yeah. Well, more rising right after this.
1: MSNBC host Rachel Maddow told the ladies of The View that if elected to a second term, Donald Trump would present a danger to the free press. Let's listen.
6: If you listen to what Trump is saying, you don't just sort of regard him as a um, as a spectacle, but you really listen to what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's basically portraying a future for America if he is put back in the White House, in which we don't have another election after yeah, that. Yeah, that's ever. right. Because the elections are all rigged, that the democratic process can't be yep. trusted, that Congress should just work <clears> for him, <throat> the Justice Department should just work for him. That's a strongman form of government. That's don't not what it, he'd cancel the news, like the right. news are done. That oh, yeah. He wants to put MSNBC on trial for treason, so yeah. that he can execute us.
0: A sit-down conversation with actor Ben Stiller. Mado was put in the spot by an audience member. She appeared to dodge his question about her stance in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Let's watch.
2: Rachel, would you consider Benjamin Netanyahu an authoritarian
4: foreign leader? Sit down. Can you please answer that? We're not here to. Would talk you to consider you.
3: Netanyahu a dangerous authoritarian foreign leader? Will you answer that? Will you stand up for the Muslim anchors at MSNBC who have been taken off the air? Will you speak for them? Will you speak up for them? What what do you call a country that bombs people in a hospital? Is that fascism?
1: So do you think Rachel Maddow is a hypocrite for talking about these freedom of uh, the press issues on The View and then declining to respond to a question? Let's say that some of the questions are out of bounds. Let's say that she doesn't believe that the hospital bombing was the idea and doesn't want to respond to that piece. What about the question about her own co-workers at MSNBC who allegedly were pulled from their hosting spots because they were the only— uh, Arab uh, host on the show, and perhaps mm-hmm. express a too pro-Palestinian uh, sympathetic view for the network.
0: I mean, to be honest, I assume she does think Benjamin Netanyahu is an authoritarian <laughs> uh, because that? he's a—she thinks every conservative person on the earth is, a, is an authoritarian, so I, I, I don't now I, her Her Israel-Palestine views might not be—I have no idea what they are. They might not be progressive enough for your taste. I might disagree with them. I have no idea. I presume she does. I mean, MSNBC has done a lot of critical coverage of Netanyahu for the judicial reforms and those mm-hmm, kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in fairness, I don't think she's been, w- without weighing in on exactly what's going on right now, I don't think she's been soft on him. But I was reminded, like, okay, there's, and then look, I'm not defending anything Trump's ever said or done with respect. To the election, but I I do gotta say it's always a bit rich because there was plenty of election denying going on on MSNBC in different contexts. Chris Hayes, not to the same extent as Trump, not with an actual plan to prevent the mm-hmm. rival from from taking office, but Chris Hayes reacted to 2016 with uh, with uh, you know asking questions about well could electors do something different. Um, you know, there's, there's Stacey Abrams got a warm welcome on the show, Hillary yeah, but, Clinton, I am it's not the same thing. I know, Raleigh,
1: but that caveat is a pretty big caveat. The step from, I hey, I think somebody should do something to make sure that Hillary is the president and saying that, which is... Protected speech, and that is not what Donald Trump is being tried for. Okay. And putting the wheels into motion, recruiting legislators across the country to draft fake slate of electors and get it presented to your vice president, so that he can say that there's ambiguity, so that the Congress can decide the president instead of the voters. Is a, is a very Meadow different kind of thing. The
0: 2016 election was illegitimate because because Russia, 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 yeah, Russia. Yeah, and that
1: was terrible and yeah. dumb, and it's why a lot of the left fell out of love with her when we all really liked her during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and yet we're there, not arguing. There are we're not yeah. So
0: it, it's it's so but, but the but. Question to me
1: the, the big the big the bigger issue in terms of perhaps where one might feel compelled to respond even if generally speaking you think it's a heckler I'm just going to wait for security to take him away is when asked about, your own colleagues and how they've been treated by the network, because mm. it, it is the, the implication there is, you know, are you going to perhaps risk your own standing with the network? Or are you going to say something true to defend them? Were they restored?
0: So, so MSNBC has taken the position that this was coincidence mm-hmm. and they did not take them off for this reason, and it was about some prearranged scheduling thing. I think in one case it was the person whose name we can't recall. No,
1: Ali Velsher was in uh, Israel. He was the one that okay. went. Okay, well, to someone was Israel. perceived
0: to. I, I, I don't know, um, and that Mehdi Hassan was just on vacation or something? I, I don't mm. know exactly what they Now, maybe that's, I'm not saying you should believe it. I just wanted to, you know, say that's what they say it was. Yeah, um, so the, the network. It'd be pretty nuts, honestly. It would be totally nuts the, if MSNBC actually took off its Muslim, its Arab um, commentators for this reason. Aren't they supposed to, does, isn't MSNBC supposed to have a progressive audience at all on foreign policy whatsoever?
1: Well. So what's interesting and I think kind of damning is that none of the three hosts to date have corroborated MSNBC's stance that it was all just coincidence. Well they haven't said anything at all. And an accident. Exactly. And if my co- my yeah. my you know employer was right. out here representing some some version sure. of events that I felt very differently about. Um, or if, that I agreed with. If I, if, you know, if if people were accusing, like for example, uh, in the midst of this Daily Beast. Uh, Piece oh, about sure. our argument, yeah. like some people were like, "Oh, it was probably Robbie." I'm like, "No, of course it's not Robbie." It like, not me. <laughs> so the Hill team has been very supportive. I would
0: die before <laughs> I interacted positively with the Daily Beast.
1: <laughs> so like, it's important, it was important for me to say, "No, it's not Robbie," and to follow up my tweet. Like, the Hill team has been very supportive. Like, the Rising team has been very supportive. Now, if I did think that somebody sure. was after me, sure. then I would maybe just sit quiet no, and let point. people run with their own conclusions. That's a good point.
0: It's a very good point.
1: So I mean, it does it does feel a little bit I think awkward for her to be put in that position. Not about some of that other stuff I think, which are easily ignored by people in her position. And given the nature of hecklers, um, that we should say that that heckler I, I believe was also Jose Varga was involved. He has done a number of these instances where he confronts um, people. He's the person who's a LaRoucheite who confronts people. At
0: these oh, is he was confronting AOC uh-huh. about yeah.
1: Ukraine. Yeah, I think he did um, Jamal Bowman. He said he and his uh, colleagues, I think there were a couple of people who made some comments about Rachel Maddow. Thing. Notable gadfly, a notable, a notable gadfly who does at times get some interesting things on the record uh, mm. that are that are useful to understanding what's going on in the minds of folks that don't often submit to interviews, at least interviews by independent media who are unlikely just to make it a cakewalk for them.
2: Mm.
0: Well, I think that does it for us for this week on Rising. Jessica Burbank and Spencer Brown will be here tomorrow to take the helm.
1: <laughs> also be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: It's been our honor to report the news during this really pivotal mm-hmm. week with a lot going on. Yeah. There's a lot of good information and bad information out there, and we really thank we thank you so much that you tune into us to get the truth and the facts from us rather than some other outlet. Um, it really means a lot. Yeah. Your faith in us. Thank you. Bye-bye.